0: on the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple common sense and financial wisdom. And now, here are your hosts from LPF Advisors.
1: Hey, I want to welcome everybody to the Confident Retirement Podcast, brought to you by LPF Advisors. I'm your host, as always, Chris Flaming, And today, I have the honor of welcoming Daniel Stock to the show. His family law practice based in New York and Westchester County specializes in high asset and late life divorce with powerful and discreet representation. I'm planning to get his take on this and other timely topics during our time together today. So Daniel, thanks for being here and welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, let's have some fun. So I'd like you to take me through a a brief history or background on what led you to opening up your own practice.
2: Well, that's a good question, Chris, and it has to be that when you have your own business, uh, you don't have anybody else to blame if you're not doing well, if you're not making money, if you're not helping your clients, you don't have levels of approval to go through. And you get to pick the kinds of clients that you feel you can do the best job for. Uh, divorce is a tough nut to crack, and uh, it only gets harder when when you don't get uh, to play a part in, in picking your, your own clients.
1: Okay. All right. So is there something that you think you would tell your younger self if you could go back in time? So something that you wish you knew when you started out that you know now?
2: Buy cheaper suits.
1: Uh, (laughs) And is that because of the pandemic? You don't need the well, suit anymore,
2: or what's the reason? Strangely enough, coming out of, uh, before going into law, I had a career in not that many years, but I had a brief career in banking in um, mm-hmm. Lower Manhattan and Wall Street. And back then in the 80s, you know, there was only one uniform, which is a gray or navy blue suit and wingtips. And that's pretty much how you got on the subway every morning, and you got off on Wall Street, and that's how you dressed. My first brush with uh, family law, which is in with divorce law, kind of a related field, was in upstate New York. And I remember going into the first courthouse there and auditing a family law case because I'd been assigned to a judge temporarily to see how I would do. And at the end of the proceeding that morning, he turned to me, I was sitting in the back row, and he said, well, Dan, you know, how do you think that went? Or did you learn anything? I said, judge, uh, I'm way overdressed for this courtroom. True story. So, you know, you have to basically these days with COVID, you know, we're all professionals here. I actually have to tell my clients how to dress for court now that we're back in live format. But even Mm -hmm. when we're on zoom all the time, appearances do count. A lot is riding on the line. People are depending on me every day to get custody of their children Preserve marital assets, and I wouldn't want to go to anybody who's dressed in a T-shirt to do that for me. So I kind of draw a happy medium these days. But for sure, I would tell my younger self, um, you know, put your money in your four hundred one k, ease up on the two thousand dollars suits, and you're going to be happier at retirement time.
1: Right. That we have. That's business casual is the, the is dress ca- that we have nowadays. That's right. So you said something interesting there that's a segue, a question I wanted to ask. So sometimes people might think, well, do I even need a lawyer to handle a divorce or to handle my divorce, right? So how, how do you answer that question? I know you spend a little bit of time on that on, on your website. So how do you approach that and when you talk to people that ask that question?
2: Again, good question and even better question because we're in the world of the internet and have been for many, many years at this point. And there's a tendency to think that with the right YouTube connection and the right internet feed or website, you can have the answer to everything. Well, I think we all know that's not true. And most of us have that the hard way. The problem in divorce and family law breakups, uh, for example, there are many people who don't need a divorce because they're not married and have children. They're entitled to some of the same protections that married folks are. The problem is one of uh, coming to an agreement with your ex or soon-to-be ex on every single item in your marriage, just to take marriages for a moment. And that is easier said than done. If you think about people in your own life, they may be friends or partners, how many times are you actually able, even in a non-conflict setting, to agree on a course of action? No, I want to go to the night game, not the day game. I'm free this weekend. I'm only free on weeknights. Can you walk this dog this morning? No, I have to get to my meeting. The list goes on, obviously. The problem in divorce is that these problems become legal issues and large ones. So you would always need, unless a person can say with absolute 100% certainty that they can resolve each and every issue in a divorce, including where the children are going to, going to go to school, if there are children, how much money is going to get paid in child support, who's going to live where, is the bungalow and the Catskills going to get sold, is the Hamptons house going to get sold or rented, and who's going to live where. It's very, very rare for people to agree on each and every one of those aspects. If you don't, you're gonna need a lawyer to resolve it with typically the other lawyer or in court. So for anybody, the rule of thumb that I always give people when I'm asked this question is, how much money do you have in the bank that you would be comfortable losing 100% of if you do this yourself and your case doesn't turn out? How many children do you have that you'd be willing to lose custody of if this doesn't work out the way you want? which pretty much leaves people living in rent-controlled apartments in New York City with no cars and no assets and no dogs or cats as the community of people who don't need lawyers. Because if you don't have anything to lose, then it's okay. If you have one thing of value that means anything to you, either on a sentimental basis or a monetary basis, you're going to need some help getting through this. And the people who get you through this are called lawyers.
1: So can you Uh, quickly define for us, and you spoke a little bit about that, what contested and uncontested divorces are, the, the differences between
2: those two? Right. Good point. So an uncontested divorce would be one that there may be some areas of disagreement, but it doesn't make it to the stage of papers being filed in court, because in court, you normally have to check off a box that says, is this a contested case or an uncontested case? It's really a legal terminology phrase. The courts don't care what happened to lead up to the uncontested stage. If you check the box that says contested, the court understands that it has to call a series of conferences and ultimately hold a trial on any of the issues or maybe all of them that are not resolved. Uncontested means you have settled all the differences yourself. And the only reason you're filing the papers with the court is to get the court's seal of approval on the divorce, because you can only get divorced in all 50 states. You can only get divorced if a court signs an order, typically called a judgment of divorce. So you're going to need the court system. But if you have settled the case, you only need them at the tail end. And that's what you would call an uncontested divorce.
1: Okay. And I think it's important to make the distinction that uncontested does not mean that
2: you didn't have a lawyer. Right. Right. In fact, one of the best ways to keep yourself out of court is to have a lawyer helping you through the negotiating stage because, and this uh, actually gets into an area that we're approached with all the time, which is, uh, should I do mediation or should I hire a lawyer? And you know I probably have three to five conversations with new clients about this every week. What's the difference? Why should I do it this way? Why should I do it that way? And think about it like this. When you go into a football game, you need to know what the rules are, any game. And it's not a good place to be if you don't know what the rules are. So people might say, well, what's the difference? we're not trying this case in court, we're just mediating this case. Well, you know, the mediator will take care of us. Not so fast. The next question I ask people when they ask me that question, we're going to mediation, I, I say, well, you know, okay, sounds like an okay idea. What exactly are you mediating? And then I get the blank stare. Well, of course, Mr. Stock, we're mediating, you know, who gets the house and who gets the dog? Okay, and then my next question is, you know, do you happen to know what the law on that is? And I get another blank stare? Well, no, we hadn't thought of that. Okay. So you're going into mediation without knowing what the rules are, without knowing what the law entitles you to, and you're going to rely on the mediator who's a professional neutral, who doesn't care about either one of you, to say that something is fair. So not to segue too much into mediation, but, yeah, that's, that's the issue I get a lot when right. those things come up.
1: That's understandable. Um, I'm curious what just your opinion on what you see as being some of the reasons behind uh, the late life divorce trend, right? More and more people are, are getting divorced later in life. So I'm curious what your insight is on, you know, just your thoughts on, on the reasons for that or, or why that might be happening.
2: Well, the reason, in my opinion, is that the culture has changed um, In the past 20 years, you know, they say every 20 to 30 years, we get a cultural shift. It may be in uh, popular culture. It may be in the law. It may be, and these days often is in, in technology. When you think of the advances that are happening now and you, you run them up against the background of history. I mean, we're, we're changing more. Our lives are changing more now every 10 years than they have in the last thousand years i mean the very the very concept of being able to uh get into your car in the morning and say a few commands and very soon have the car take you wherever you want to go without touching the steering wheel these are these in recent memory were science fiction concepts they're not science fiction concepts anymore so Our culture has has changed. Our culture changes slower than technology does, but it still does change. So why people wait later to get divorced and why we're seeing more so-called gray divorces or older people getting divorced is that culturally, there is very, very little stigma left attached to the act of being divorced. There are certain religious aspects to it where it is a stigma. So, if you, but if we're not counting those religions, and they are significant, that do have, and I won't use the word stigma, but uh, a negative connotation, uh, a barrier, if you will, attached to the implementation of getting divorced. If you, we're not talking about religion, if we're talking about uh, non-religious divorce, there is very little stigma attached to it, and people are no longer reluctant to do it. Financially, they understand that they may be a penalty to it. They're no longer afraid of that. So culturally speaking, people are more interested in their happiness. And remember also that people are living a lot longer now than they did even 50 years ago. So if you're a 65-year-old person and you feel, rightly or wrongly, hopefully rightly, that you have another 35 years left to live instead of... 50 years ago when maybe you had another 15 years to live so the playing field changes and it becomes longer and people are seeing the horizon of their lives a little bit differently now and they're saying well let me see if I get this straight so am I going to I've been not so happy for the last 30 years though I want to be not so happy for the next 30 years not so much even if I'm a 60 or a 65 year old person so there's a lot cutting in favor of that and we've we've seen it a lot in my firm as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And do you think there are some unique aspects of late life divorce, some, you know, some unique components of that that are different than someone that might um, end their marriages at a younger age?
2: Yeah, there are a number of differences. Uh, For one thing, people are approaching if they have not already reached the age where they're going to be collecting Social Security and pensions. So there's a big difference. And some of them may already be have started collecting their pensions. And pensions, like any other ass, any other prop, piece of property accumulated during a marriage, it's called mar- marital property. Uh, a big part of our job um, in terms of high net worth divorce is valuing what all of the assets are worth. And some are more tricky to value than others, pensions being one of them. Uh, most divorce lawyers hire a number of experts in a complicated divorce to find out the value of certain things, pensions or one of them. Well, if a couple who's 35 years old comes to me or an individual in a marriage and says, okay, well, let's, you know, I want to hire you to put through my divorce. One of the first questions I have is, okay, among other questions, what do you have in your retirement accounts? And when did you start accumulating that money? That case is going to play out very differently and require a different set of calculations and valuations than a case where somebody is 65 and is already receiving what's called pay status pensions if the pension is kicked in already. That's one difference. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid availability, social security, disability benefits, all these benefits tend to come into play more when people are older. And believe it or not, alimony tends to go away when the older people get. And that's a very, very tricky topic these days, because the playing field is like, as I say, being lengthened. So the arguments you would have 20 years ago, where you'd go into court and the other side would ask for alimony, and you represented, let's say, the person in the marriage, typically, but not always the husband who would be paying the alimony. The first thing you would say to your adversary would be, well, you know, that's an interesting argument. But next week she's going to start collecting social security. This is a non-alimony case. You really can't say that anymore because if somebody has been supported in a marriage and they're going to live another 30 years, the calculus changes for that. So you have Mm -hmm. to know, you have to really be taking the temperature of the court system that you're working in, how cases are going like that, and whether that's true or not in your particular area.
1: Okay. All right. So, and I saw on your website that you also have a specialty in helping people uncover hidden assets, generally in divorce proceedings. So, how is that accomplished? Give us a little bit of insight on that.
2: Right, hidden assets are probably one of the most unappreciated or un uh, an aspect about which people are most unaware. There's a lot of work that goes into putting together a divorce case where one spouse is wealthy and may have hidden assets, and Finding out whether or not assets have been hidden, and then putting into place a method for uncovering the assets, is a very, very important part of any high net worth divorce. If you, spe- if you, especially if you're representing the party who has been kept in the dark about mm-hmm. hidden assets, mm-hmm. so the way this is done in, in most high level law firms dealing with these sorts of divorce cases is to hire a series of forensic specialists who go in and are equipped to uncover assets this could range all the way from forensic accountants who operate based on data that's just given to them in the process that we call discovery which is getting financial information from the other side all the way to computer forensic analysts who will receive uh, electronic devices like ipads iphones desktop computers and look into those and see what data is hidden on those. Just a quick point on the latter category of experts. We've reached the point now in the legal system and where almost every case involves a large component of electronic discovery, okay? Mm -hmm. And we're reaching a point in our society where very, very, very little data is not stored electronically including this podcast, including when you turn on the radio, virtually any time we sit down at our computers or tablets or iPhones or other devices and type a message to anybody in the world, it is recorded whether you realize it or not. There is a copy being made of it stored on a cloud and it is very, very easily accessible to anybody who is focused enough to get that information. We used to be in the world of the only way you would get access to that information is if you asked somebody for their records or you subpoenaed records and that you would see a smoking gun. You would see a memorandum from one department head to the other, you know, let's do A, B, C. Now at the touch of a button, you can get that information. Now you have to know which buttons to push and that's where the electronics forensics come into play. And a number of the cases that I have at my firm right now um, involve having had to retain both a uh, forensic accountant to crunch the numbers mm-hmm. and a forensic electronics expert to get the data in the first place. So the concept mm-hmm. of information leading to hidden assets is a very, very important part. And you never know what's gonna, what may have been hidden unless you do that, that homework, and that homework's a big part of it. So that's how we handle hidden assets these days.
1: Okay. And are there some areas of your practice that you get the most enjoyment from right now, personally?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Again, and the answer's got to be, it's kind of who's your favorite beetle, not to date myself too much. (laughs) Um, Some experiences kind of, you know, transcend the whole medium, I have to say that, I'd have to say there are two areas that I'm I'm very, very gratified. One is certainly the day you walk out of court after having won a custody case for somebody and they throw your arms around you and say, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. There are very few experiences like that in life. And it typically reflects years and years sometimes of work having mm-hmm. gone into it. It's not quite like we wake up one morning and put on a suit and walk out having won a custody case. So it's like any other exercise that you'd spend a lot of time perfecting or getting better at, and then you get to see the results. So that's an emotional high that, you know, uh, not everybody gets to experience. If you're lucky, it happens in your life a couple of dozen times. The other one is getting the kind of divorce settlement for what we call the non-moneyed or the lesser-moneyed spouse. That's fancy language for the wife or the mom who's been supported in a long-term marriage. Could be the other gender, obviously. And after 20 years, wakes up and realizes that even though she's lived a very luxurious lifestyle or a very nice lifestyle and has taken three international vacations a year and drives any kind of car that she might want, et cetera, et cetera, That's not going to happen anymore. And what is standing between that kind of person and really uh, utter disaster, at least in terms of lifestyle, not even getting into how the children are going to get supported, is a successfully settled or tried divorce case, which results in a settlement in a high enough amount to keep her if not exactly in step with the kind of life to which her spouse has accustomed her for many years, but to get as close to it as possible. And it's very, very, it's like any other law, civil lawsuit. These things are not won overnight. There are sometimes years of preparation that go into that. So the day that you get the judgment from a court or you get a settlement agreement signed. Setting up your your client for the rest of her life—that's a really good day in any matrimonial attorney's life. And just one more point on the on the uh, tipping point of what happens during a divorce. I tell this to my clients probably five times a week. The ones that are, let's say, the spouses who are about to be disadvantaged in the divorce—you only get one chance to get this right. There are no do overs, and there's no mulligans in Divorce. And if you don't get it right, meaning if you don't get the kind of result, whether you want custody, whether you want custody and enough assets to live the rest of your life in a nice lifestyle, it's very rare that you get to upset a judgment on appeal. Now, I've certainly argued appeals and been victorious there. You don't want to have to go there. You must, you should assume in. Basically, all cases that the judgment or the deal, if it's negotiated, that you're going to get is going to is going to stand up pretty much forever. So with limited exceptions, you don't get a do over. So unless you get the settlement amount right the first time, you're not going to be able to go back to court Mm -hmm. the next year and say, well, we should have done it a little bit differently. That's not going to happen. So the stakes are fairly high. To get it right the first time and what you're looking for is a law firm that's done this enough times that the chances of them getting it right you know the 505th time are relatively better than the second or third time they've ever tried a divorce case
1: yeah okay and do you think that there's some common misconceptions that the public or people or potential clients might have about what you do
2: there are a lot and it's tough to you know pick out the bigger ones, but, I, I, but some of them are certainly whether or not we can answer questions that have a bearing on their case, but are not going to actually result in any court activity or any legal pe- papers being filed. Uh, people usually don't know a lot about what we do behind the scenes, but they ask us a lot of questions. So for example, one of the common questions I get asked is during the divorce process, my husband and I are now separated. Nothing's been done officially, can I have a boyfriend or girlfriend? The answer is yes, maybe. Uh, you can have a boyfriend or girlfriend if it doesn't have any negative impact on any children that you may have. And then the next question is, what does a negative impact mean? Well, does the person use drugs or alcohol around the child? The answer is yes. Don't go near that. Per- don't ever you know, go near that person when the child is with you. Mm-hmm. I'm not encouraging people to have significant others with people who use drugs or alcohol either but that doesn't have a direct bearing on the divorce so there's a lot of um basically what happens in a divorce is you sign on as uh, an advisor actually our license uses the word counselor at law okay. so we have the ability to actually tell people what to not tell but advise people what to do in their lives and the situations really run the gamut should i enroll my child in 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 tackle football Should I give my child music lessons? Uh, Should I send my child to a private school? Should I stop payment on a check for the private school because my husband has just cut off my credit card account and I can't go shopping anymore? So the the questions are infinite. So a lot of folks don't realize that we're going to have a pretty active presence in their lives for a while, Mm -hmm. at least until the case is is over. So that's that's, uh, one that just jumps out.
1: Okay. And I'm sure you've seen both the positive and the negative effects of what a lot of wealth can do in dealing with families that are going through divorce. So I'm just curious what your take is on what people could do maybe in advance of getting to the stage where they need a divorce to prevent that frustration or that fighting or that bad feelings. I guess what I'm thinking about is is there stuff that's avoidable or if, if they had just thought about it differently or done this, they would have never gotten to this point, knowing that every situation is different. But what what's your take on that, Danny?
2: Right. My take on that is don't ever put anything in writing when you're angry or upset to the other side. Don't make a phone call. Don't send a text message. Don't put anything on Instagram. Don't go to Facebook and don't go to LinkedIn or any other flavor that you can dream up. It can, as they say, and will be used against you in a court of law. The During the last 20 years, the mistake that most people have made, and it's a very, very costly one because you can very easily lose custody on a single email or text message if it's the wrong one. The biggest mistake people have made have been has been to not realize that text messages and emails are very easily turned over to the other side in a divorce. So automatically the other side is going to have them. The other lawyer is going to have them. The, the judge, if it goes to court, is often going to have them. And even before you leave the starting gate, you can lose your case by putting the wrong thing in an email. Uh, just one example that happened in a case of mine recently in, in New York City was a case where the mother during COVID and beyond, it had the child living with her as a out of wedlock relationship, child was born, baby girl, COVID hits, two years goes by, baby girl has been living with my client the mom for two years, building up a track record of being the primary parent, otherwise having a very, very strong case for custody. And Early on, actually before she had retained me, she had written a very, very angry email to the father. The father had responded by not sending a very angry email or set of emails back to her. So the last man standing, so to speak, was my client's emails without any negative response coming back. Now, the problem with that is that Once a child enters the picture, anything that you say to the other parent becomes magnified by a lot. Mm -hmm. And the reason it does is that you're no longer talking to the other parent purely and simply and expressing your negative opinions. What you're doing is you're telling the court who's going to read these emails, the judge, that... I cannot cooperate with this other person. Well, guess what? If you cannot cooperate with the other parent, who's gonna be raising this child? Not the both of you. The person who's more rational, more calm, less hard-headed, less impulsive, and less prone to create conflicts which are not good for kids. So nobody thinks about this when they're in the heat of the moment and they send these emails. But that is clearly in the last 20 years, one of the biggest weight mistakes that people make. That's a really good point.
1: I do wanna, I wanna shift gears just a little bit, learn a little bit about you. So either personally or professionally, what do you, what would you say is your biggest life accomplishment so far?
2: I mean, doing my daily work. I mean, I'm very, very fortunate because the, the work that I do, um, whether it's in the courtroom as a trial lawyer, in matrimonial cases, or whether staying up late at night and sifting through a 1000 pages of a tax return. It's really, quite frankly, taken over my life at this stage. Mm. It's, you know, I spend most of my waking hours doing this. It's really, in my view, necessary. One of the one of the things that you're doing when you when you hire a lawyer is I don't I don't in except for very routine matters, I do not assign junior associates or younger lawyers to high net worth cases. You hire my firm, you get me. This is all I've been doing for 25 years. I have to say that this being able to help people through a very, very difficult part of their lives is amazingly gratifying. Uh, I will also say one other thing about it, which is that um, the experience that you gain uh, of being being a trial lawyer which is what you have to do. We don't go to trial like as often as personal injury lawyers, accident lawyers, commercial litigation. We're in court less frequently. So we don't, we're not there every day. We're there maybe a few times a year, but the few times because nine out of 10 divorces at some point settles, yeah. even though, and so we're left with the other one or whatever the numbers are. So you're not in court every day when you are in court you better show up and you better be prepared and you better be interested in advocating for your client. Why do I mention all this? I'm in court constantly with other lawyers who are there to conduct the trial and the kind of, you talk about leaving something on the playing field they're either not prepared or they're not really interested in advocating for their client. And it's one of those few things that you cannot teach. And I mentioned this to any of the lawyers out there who are thinking about a career in matrimonial law on the litigation side. Ask yourself if you have the fire in the belly, as they used to call it, to do that, because it's an essential part of standing up in court, literally and figuratively, for, for your client, you're up. You may be up against a judge who doesn't like your client. You may be up against an adversary who's unscrupulous and has done dirty tricks. Whatever it is, you, you're there. You meet it head on. And if you don't enjoy that kind of action, so to speak, that's absolutely fine. Just don't go to court. Right. So I look forward to the day when you know lawyers in court are there because. That's the kind of work that they're, they're cut out to do. But I just have to say that the most really gratifying part, aside from the fact that I do, I do enjoy courtroom work, I do enjoy the, um, you know, the interplay that happens there, I'm there for a purpose, I'm fortunate enough to enjoy the process, it's not nails on a blackboard for me, it's just the opposite. Basically, when you sign on to be a lawyer, you're helping people with a problem that they have in their lives. The area of family law is unique in that the decisions that are being made and what you're helping people with have lifelong consequences. And to be able to help somebody, whether it's collecting uh, the proper amount of child support, which is payable for many, many years, whether you're helping somebody preserve their house they live in, people come to me every day and say, Dan, I don't care whatever else happens, I wanna stay in my home and not, okay, well, Unfortunately, that's not exactly what the law says, but I'll do what I can to keep you in your home. I don't want to lose custody of my children. It's the worst thing. I don't care about money, but I just, and if you're lucky enough to have helped enough people do that, you know, you're doing your job. And quite frankly, that's, that's the greatest reward, uh, law or any other profession in my view, that's the greatest reward anybody can have is that you've helped somebody do something that could not be done unless you were personally able to make that happen. And that is the greatest feeling.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, that's the biggest satisfaction that I get in working with clients is helping them knowing that they would maybe go down a different path or end up in a different place if I hadn't been involved in their life. And in a lot of cases, even helping prevent them from making really bad financial decisions that could change the trajectory of their lives. So I'm right with you on that. Now, tell me, More about the matrimonial law project. This is something that you're involved in. It's a pro bono thing. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Explain what that is and why
2: you're involved? Sure, absolutely. So, lawyers who have practiced their special practice area for at least 10 years can get on certain panels. In this case, it's the Supreme Court of the state of New York, County of New York, otherwise known as New York City. And I was approached through a bar association. I'm on to be a member of the panel. I was very flattered that they would consider selecting me. I had certainly met the timeline requirement. And it's a panel that is part of a larger, a larger movement in the court system. And this is happening not just in New York, but in other states as well, known as alternative dispute resolution. Meaning that instead of having a case tried to a judge and in a courtroom, that you mediate the case not through what most of us think of as mediation, but where you have an attorney acting as more of a a referee and assigned to the case. So it's the uh, what. So I'm on a panel of my peers who are assigned on this panel, and every few months we'll get a notice from the court. Dan, are you available to take this case? Answer, yes. The parties and their lawyers will come before me in my conference room in Manhattan, and they will, in effect, try their case to meet. Now, not in, I don't have any authority to decide the case the way a judge would, but I do have the authority to make certain recommendations to them and to the court as to the way it's going. So the lawyers come in, clients come in, and they sort of tell their story to me, make their arguments, I ask questions, I write a little report, and it gets filed with the court. and this is, this, is, um, this is this is the New York City's way of trying to help people move their cases along without, without the expense or the time of a formal trial.
1: Okay, all right, that makes sense. so. What do you think is probably the most exciting part of your business right now? What's your biggest opportunity
2: going forward? Um, well, the biggest opportunity right now has been people coming out of sheltering in place in COVID and asking what their options are for divorce. I mean, remember, we're we're living in very unique times, right? Uh, it's how many times, you know, once in 100 years is we have a natural disaster of this magnitude? People are asking questions like, Is it safe to take my child to the park? Or I'm separated from my husband and he wants to take the child to a park without a mask. You know, uh, I had a case last year during COVID where actually, unfortunately, if you're a New Yorker, this was a very bad day for us because there was rioting in midtown Manhattan, not specifically related to COVID. And certainly for the first time in my life, um, New York City was under a curfew. This doesn't happen too often. In New York or other otherwise, and I started getting calls from clients about whether or not their child could be transferred to the other parent for visitation during a curfew. I had actually had other lawyers argue with me about whether or not the curfew should be broken because it was more important for their client to see the child rather than to obey an executive government order. So I, you know, you got involved in those things. So. Those are some of the things that, you know, that we've had to deal with. Um, it's how much is too much protection? When do children get the shots? What kind of masks should they wear? What kind of precautions have people taken? Yeah. So this is very timely. And don't forget, right? We're still going on with COVID. COVID yeah. is not gone. The Delta variant is very much with us. And so we're just at the time that we thought we could close the book on those sorts of cases, they're, they're very much, you know, they're very much continuum.
1: Yeah, would would you say that's been that's also been your biggest challenge?
2: Is you know what the pandemic has done to how people? Yeah, the biggest challenge from COVID has got to be having court proceedings take place virtually through Zoom or or similar you, you know means. And the reason why is is this: at the end of the day, there's two kinds of things that happen in court. One call conferences where the judge wants to talk to the parties and the lawyers to solve some particular problem that's come up or to deal with some procedural issue that's on the calendar for that case for that day. Uh, some are formal, some are informal. Formal means it's taken down by a court stenographer, either electronically or in person, becomes part of what we call a record. Some are informal, meaning they're off the record, literally. So that's one type of thing that happens in court. The other thing that happens in court are trials, which everybody is familiar with from TV and movies. You go in, you present your evidence, you have witnesses. Those sorts of things happen. Well, during covid there was some confusion at first as to whether or not one or both of these court activities would be conducted or suspended or done in person or done in trial. Well, nothing with rare exceptions involving emergencies, nothing was done in person. So for about a year, the courthouses were pretty much under lock and key and everything was being done virtually. Toward the tail end, they started doing trials virtually. And I had a couple like that. And it was very, very difficult to do your job because some of the things that happen in a courtroom don't translate to a flat screen. So having the trials done virtually uh, was not good. They've recently lifted that. And I had my first in-person trial last week in New York City in over two years. The conferences are a really good idea to have by virtual methods because they do translate a lot better into the things that have to be done in a conference. Trials are very different. So the silver lining of COVID for us has been that the courts have at this point, there's been noth- nothing official handed down yet, but the, the almost unanimous opinion of judges and lawyers I've spoken with are that they're in favor of continuing any all conferences by video and they're strongly in favor as I am, of doing trials in person.
1: Okay. So if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, wanted to contact you or learn more about your firm, what's the best way for them to do that?
2: The best way is either by phone at 475-232-4105 or by email at dhstock at stock pllc.com. Okay. And you also have a, a public website presence too, right? I do. And my okay. website is dhstocklaw.com.
1: Great. So the people have a few ways to get a hold of you there. Uh, Daniel, I want to thank you. You've been an insightful guest and it's been a pleasure having you with us today. We did some deep dives on some of those topics. That was really good information. And I do want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors, where we are raising the retirement confidence of everyday people to another level one show at a time. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. Take care.
0: You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.